0: Welcome back, 1001 fans, to Beyond Ball's Roots of Mission Impossible, Part 2. It's great to have you with us for this epic story of escape and courage. The Nazis had a tight grip on Norway by 1943, and the Allies were trying every way they could, with the help of Norwegian men who had either escaped the Nazis, or were away from their home country when the Germans rolled in and occupied it. Now their greatest desire was to free their countrymen, and if it meant dying in the process, so be it. Jan Balzrud was the only survivor of one such mission. His comrades-in-arms were all dead. He had no personal effects other than the clothes he wore and his sidearm and his pocket knife. All that, including his identification, had blown up with the fishing boat that had brought him to the coast. His boot had been shot off, along with his big toe. The boot had to be replaced by generous locals who risked their lives to provide him shelter— and this was the pattern that would continue as he moved constantly, not wanting to place these kind partisans and their families in the path of danger. And it was these people and their families that went through Jan's mind as the rowboat manned by the two Sorenses, Einar and Bernard, Einar's father, churned through the heavy snow and high wind on its way to the mainland. Jan had gone two nights now without sleep, and he was running now on adrenaline. They had provided him with skis and ski boots, and soon he could move in freedom in surroundings that he understood. It was mid-morning when the small boat pulled up on the southern shore of the mainland. The Swedish frontier, his destination, was sixty miles away. Not an easy sixty miles, but sixty miles nonetheless. All he needed was one good sleep to get started. There was no time for small talk. Jan bid thanks and goodbye to the Sorensens. They wished him well and then shoved off. There were houses on the shoreline, and the people in these houses, according to the Sorensons, were all trustworthy. Jan was to ask for a man called Lockertsen, who lived in a farm called Snarby. Jan did not want to put more people at risk, and would have preferred to sleep in a barn without knocking on any doors, but he needed food and a safe sleep. He approached the house, found a door, and turned the handle, which opened. There was no barking dog, he felt like a prowler, and then realized the irony of surviving all that he had survived, and then being shot in someone's kitchen as a burglar. Upstairs, Prue Lockerton heard something downstairs, shook her husband awake, and he silently went down the stairs and confronted Jan. Lockerton was a big man, big like a polar bear, and he looked big enough to Jan to be able to crush him if he wanted to. Jan instantly introduced himself and told Lockerton his story, but Lockerton was staying suspicious and kept asking questions. Jan was extremely tired, and now he was doubling up on his words as well, and having trouble speaking accurately and coherently. Lockertson knew that Jan had landed from the sound, and the sound was controlled, every inch of it, by Germans. This could be a German deserter wearing a Norwegian naval uniform. The back and forth between the two continued for an hour, at which time Jan was literally too tired to speak any more, his strength and endurance was gone. He sank down on a rug in front of the kitchen hearth, and the last words he heard were those of Lockertson, saying, OK, you can stay till half past five. It was now somewhere between 3.30 and 4 a.m. Lockertson spent the next hour pacing the kitchen floor, trying to figure this thing out. He searched John's pockets, at least the ones that were exposed, but found nothing. At 5.30, true to his word, he shook Jan awake. "'That took some time, because Jan was in a deep sleep. "'When he did come out of it, he did so with a start, "'drawing his gun and covering Lockerton. "'His mind was somewhere between a past-intense dream "'and the present reality, "'in a room he didn't recognize "'with a bear of a man standing over him. "'Then his mind snapped fully into reality. "'He looked around the kitchen, "'remembered who this man was, smiled, "'and put the gun back in its front pocket "'on which he had been sleeping. "'You can't lie there all day,' "'said Lockerton, "'My wife will be cooking. "'But I have decided you can stay up in the loft, "'and then we'll see how we can help you from there.' "'He didn't have to say it twice. "'In five minutes Jan was in the hayloft "'where he slept till midday. "'Then Prue Lockerton and her daughter "'fed him and spoke with him, "'and all suspicion melted away. "'The sleep refreshed his mind and body, "'and soon he was locked in strategic discussion "'with Lockerton and trying to get a clearer picture "'of what was required to reach Sweden.' Lockertsen had good advice. He wanted to take Jan and his motorboat to Ulsfjord, and then Lingenfjord, where he could pick up a road, entirely snow-covered now, which would work to his advantage, and which would take him toward the Swedish frontier. But the entire area held the risk of Germans. There was no way to avoid them. There were more Germans in Norway now than Norwegians. Jan finally agreed to the boat ride, although he thought he had sworn off any more travel by water. But the water route would save him twenty miles of travel, so he agreed. They stayed inshore and made it safely to the mouth of Kyosin, where, in the distance, he saw endless high mountain peaks over which he had to travel. And it made him happy to know he was finally on his terrain. He was an expert skier and climber, and he liked the high country. He bid goodbye to Lockardson and wished him well, locked on his skis, and began his journey. It was a few miles from a village called Lindgesaitet. Today, Lindgesaitet, population 819, is a very small but quaint Norwegian village, known as a popular quick stop for cruise ships. The Laplanders, fur-covered tribesmen who follow the reindeer herds, come there for supplies and are known to pose for photos during the tourist season. But in 1943, it was occupied by Germans who set up roadblocks and made sure that fear was instilled in the population when it came to helping any strangers out. Looking at it today, you can't help but wonder how the Germans thought they could dominate all of Europe forever. Did they just believe that it would all be some kind of happy empire going forward? Jan came to a roadblock in the darkness. "'It was manned, and he knew he would have to skirt it, "'which he did, by climbing some steep hillside areas. "'But he was delayed by fencing which had been laid "'for the purpose of making it difficult to avoid the roadblocks. "'And it was working. "'Then one of his bindings got loosened, "'and he spent more time repairing that. "'When he finally reached the road again, "'far beyond and out of sight of the roadblock, "'it was daylight. "'He approached the edge of the sleepy village in the early morning, "'rounding a rocky bend at full speed.' at full momentum on his skis, and running straight through about forty German soldiers who were carrying their mess tins, their shirts half open. They saw him coming and opened a path for him, probably thinking he was delivering mail or had some other purpose being there. Jan still had a Norwegian mariner's uniform on with a flag in Norway printed on it, but they were either too sleepy, and he was moving so fast that they didn't see it. He took a quick glance back and saw that no one was looking at him. At the other end of the village he ran a roadblock, and this time they fired some shots at him which missed, and soon they were in pursuit, but he was a master skier, and they had no chance of getting close enough for a shot. Now began the climb, from water level at the village toward the distant peaks, and he had made it to about 3,000 feet in three hours. How do you climb on skis? You pound your way up. The Lingan Alps in the distance were 6,000 foot high peaks, About six hours later found him twenty miles from where he had started. It had been difficult, but nothing he couldn't handle, and the weather had been good. But now it was turning. The sky darkened, and soon a heavy snow began to fall. The snow was blinding, and it slowed him down terribly. His visibility was now limited to about six feet. It was getting dangerous fast. This was a land of deep gorges and precipices. He had no choice but to keep moving but moving in the wrong direction could easily send him over a cliff. There was no way of telling which direction he was heading save one, the wind. He had to keep the wind on his right, he knew, and had to pray that it hadn't and wouldn't shift direction. The right side of his body soon became coated with ice, and his hair and beard became matted. His right hand grew numb. After hours of moving, he began to doubt the direction of the wind. Without it, he was lost. At one point he stopped and tried to dig himself down into the snow in an effort to ride out the storm. But as soon as he did, the bitter cold attacked him, and he knew that to stay unmoving in a hole could kill him. It was die in a hole or die trying to keep moving against the storm. By the end of the day, he was just moving. If he went over a cliff, then that was God's plan for him. He felt himself going downhill now. Every so many steps now, he would make a big snowball and throw it in front of him to see if he could hear it land. "'That way he knew he wasn't walking over an edge. "'Finally he spotted a huge dark shape ahead of him, "'and for a moment he thought he'd found a house. "'But it was a rock, a huge rock, "'and there was a space beneath it. "'He climbed in and fell asleep from exhaustion, "'no longer wondering if he would wake up. "'He didn't know it at the time, "'but he was in Lingdalen, again near the coast, "'about ten miles from where he had sped through the roadblock, "'and the same distance after all those hours from the frontier he was headed for, and Sweden. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. "'When Jan awoke and climbed out from under the rock, "'the blizzard was still in progress. "'He again tried climbing, "'but did not know he was climbing a glacier "'and that his movements across it would trigger an avalanche, "'which is exactly what happened. "'The snow beneath his feet gave way, "'and he was immediately swept up "'in a rolling, thunderous mountain of snow. "'It carried him roughly to the valley floor below, "'where he lay unconscious and badly bruised, "'and all but his head was buried. "'His skis had broken, and one was gone.' When he came to consciousness, he dug himself out. His food rucksack was gone. His mind was in a state of delirium. He was hearing voices. His vision had been affected, probably from the pounding his head had taken from the avalanche. Now, without skis, he wandered aimlessly and came across a solitary log cabin. He felt his way around it, finally reaching a door and a latch. The latch moved. The door opened. And he fell inside. Inside the cabin, Hannah Peterson was having dinner with her two sons, Otter and Johann, when a huge ice-covered form stumbled in and fell on the floor in front of them. Hannah overcame her shock enough to ask her eldest boy to go fetch their uncle, who lived nearby. The form on the floor was covered in dirt and ice. Its hair and beard were frozen. The eyes were screwed tight shut, the effect of snow blindness. The form was trying to speak, but his words couldn't be heard. Then Hannah's brother Marius Gronwald entered the room. After one look at Jan, he knew they were going to have to act quickly if they were going to save his life. He asked one of the boys to go fetch his sisters, Gruden and Ingeborg, and bring them here as fast as they could come. They came, they built up the fire, fed Jan hot milk from a spoon as soon as they could get the ice off his mouth and beard, and removed most of his outerwear, including his boots and socks, both of which were solid and had to be cut off in pieces, and laid him on a bed. His feet and legs were all in an advanced state of frostbite. The toes were frozen together in a solid block of ice. The girls began removing the ice and kneading his feet between their fingers. If Jan had any ability to feel this, it no doubt would have been extremely painful, but he was beyond feeling anything in his legs or feet. Throughout this process, Marius was trying to determine if Jan was friend or foe. Marius had heard about Toftje and expected that this was a Norwegian. At one point Marius set the women out of the room and bent down to Jan's ear, saying, "'Listen to me. "'If you're a good man, you've come across good people. "'Now speak out.' And Jan summoned all his strength and told Marius his story. Marius answered, "'Don't worry. We'll look after you. Go to sleep.' Jan asked him his name and asked where he was. Marius answered that he was in the village of Fuhrerplatten. In the past few days the Germans had searched every house in that village. They said they were looking for radio sets, but now it was obvious they were searching for this man. Harboring him would mean prison and torture for these families, but Marius and his family were all patriots. He was the leader of the local resistance, or what there was of it. They were cut off from the outside world here. The Germans had taken control of all means of communication. To be in the resistance here was really only saying you were part of a patriotic club. You had no dynamite to blow up tracks, no weapons to snipe the Germans with, You just waited. But now they could do something. They were all putting their lives on the line to harbor a fugitive, and none of them had any doubts that they were doing the right thing. Again, pure luck and good people had saved Jan. The women spent the entire first night working on his legs from the knees down, trying to restore circulation. By morning, Jan woke to extreme pain in his feet. Hard to handle, but a good sign that he would survive. For about a week, Jan had begun to see light again and feel his feet and legs. He could not stand, or obviously walk, but his health was improving and his mind was clearing. The two families that had taken him in had been coached by Marius not to talk to anyone, because to do so could mean death or prison for all of them. By April 12th, a gradual warming was coming. More people were moving about, and soon the Peterson farm would be busting with relatives and people. It was time to move Jan to a more secluded spot. The problem was that he needed to be carried on a stretcher, which people would see and there would be questions, and he would need care, food, and water until he could support himself. Marius devised a plan to move Yon to a remote, abandoned farm called Rebdal, on which stood a tiny log cabin. There were no dwellings within four miles of it, so it was private. The problem was getting Yon there without being seen, and it would take three more men to carry the makeshift stretcher. Marius had to recruit three close friends to do it, and they knew what the risks were. There were two dangerous spots they had to pass—the schoolhouse, in which the Germans were garrisoned, and the sentry who patrolled the road. Then there was the chance that they would run into neighbors, who would want to stop to talk. The only route possible would be the riverbed, which was sunken, and therefore out of sight to passers-by, but it ran right past, and just a few feet, from the schoolhouse in which the Germans were housed. They decided on starting at 11 p.m., at which time most of the local villagers had gone to bed two men were to accompany Marius and the stretcher onto which Jan had been strapped. Marius's sister Ingeborg took point, walking ahead to spot any trouble. The job of transporting the stretcher couldn't be done on skis. To these Norwegians, moving anywhere without skis this time of year was like a cowboy going without a horse. But men of skis carrying a stretcher was a disaster waiting to happen. Another man was assigned to a high moraine where he could watch the sentry. A rowboat with a sail was waiting at the beach to take Jan and a few of the men to Rebdal. The group started out by climbing straight down to the riverbed with the stretcher, and when they reached it, they stopped to rest. They started down the channel toward the schoolhouse. Then, crouching low, just beneath the beams of the yellow lights that flowed out through the schoolhouse windows, they passed quietly as they could with the snow crunching below their boots and the sound of their breathing, and the schoolhouse, with about forty armed Germans inside, fell behind them. Ingeborg had been watching the sentry ahead of them, and she appeared in view and signaled to them that the sentry was now at the furthest distance from the bridge that he was going to be. At the same time, they saw a tiny spark from a match that the hilltop watcher had lit, signaling the same message. They then scrambled across the road and made it down to the beach and the rowboat. Then Marius and one close friend loaded Jan onto the boat, and they started off toward the distant peaks that showed the direction of Revdol. When they arrived, it was indeed a long, deserted farm with a tiny cabin less than twenty feet from the beach. They carried Jan in and laid him down on a bunk, placing a paraffin stove next to him along with food supplies. Marius promised that he would be back to check on Jan in a few days, and then they left. Jan slept peacefully, the threat of being discovered now the last thing on his mind. When Marius returned to his home, he was worried about Jan had a long way to go before he could make it the next 20 miles over the mountains to Sweden. If he, Marius, were arrested, Jan would starve to death. Three days later, Marius arrived at Jan's new cabin, which he nicknamed Hotel Savoy, bringing food, and Jan was upbeat. They talked, and Jan showed Marius how he had made cigarettes out of the moss he'd picked away from the walls of the cabin. Marius promised he would try to find a real cigarette, but he also knew that cost money, and money was something that few people had in those days. When he left, he promised he would return in three days. Almost immediately after Marius left, Jan's feet started turning gray, and they began to hurt. It wasn't hard to tell if the pain he had now felt for a long time was increasing, but when his feet turned dark and the pins and needles started increasing, he knew he was in trouble. In the coming hours, the pain increased in his feet, then legs, and then spread to his body. He tried every position he could think of to ease the pain, but nothing helped. On the second day, he removed the boots and blankets from his feet and saw that his toes had turned black and that liquid was oozing from them. He had no one to turn to for help. Five long days passed then, with the gangrene spreading. Marius was waiting for a stormy sea to calm down enough that he could row, and he was worried about Jan. Finally, after a week, the sea calmed enough to row, and Marius and two close friends, loaded with food and supplies, made the trip to Rebdal. They approached the hut and found Jan in a near coma. His face was bloodless. The blankets around his leg were soaked with dried blood. Marius was able to get some hot soup down Jan's throat, and Jan was able to talk. Jan explained that several days previous he had tried to operate on himself with a pocket knife, hoping that by bloodletting he could rid himself of the infection. Marius did all he could to fix up Jan and rewrap his feet, but he knew that Jan needed a doctor. He also knew that Jan would never be able to walk or ski to Sweden. Marius then returned home and immediately brought together the members of their resistance group. They had no choice but to risk bringing more patriots into the solution, which now was to get Jan to medical care as soon as possible. But there just was no easy way to do that, and the only place it could be done would be in Sweden, which was a neutral country. One man pledged as much money as was needed to help Jan. Another had a connection with the laps, previously mentioned, a nomadic tribe which knew every pass and way through the mountains because their lives on migration took them regularly to Sweden and Finland. They were the only ones that could get Jan to a hospital. They had reindeer trained to draw sledges, and they all lived and moved beyond the reach of the Germans, who for the most part ignored them. The plan was set to meet in a hamlet called Mandal and pass Jan to the Laps, who would transport him to Sweden. But first Jan needed to be carried up the 3,000-foot-high peak at Rebdal. There was no other way this would require the efforts of four norwegian men marius and three associates who were excellent mountain climbers and could do so in the worst weather conditions possible there was 21 year old alvin larsen who had just returned from the lafoten school of winter fishing a course necessary to complete in order to become a commercial fisherman one of the most dangerous winter jobs in norway there was amandis lilleval a small wiry man with a huge reservoir of strength and determination and an excellent skier. And there was Olaf Lanes, the giant of the bunch, a quiet man with shoulders like an ox. Olaf was not known to be a talker. He was a doer. And when he set his sights on something, it got done, no matter the severity of the job. Two of the men put the sleds together, while the other two wrapped Jan securely in blankets, then worked to get him into the sleeping bag. Since Jan had no use of his legs, everything was push and pull. Then they put him on the sledge and lashed him securely down with ropes, keeping in mind that there would be moments when his body was hanging vertically from the side of a precipice and he was being pulled upward, with the sledge, by the four men above. Today, anyone would think it not only crazy, but impossible. But war creates unusual solutions to problems. The path of ascent up the slope was filled with every drawback you could imagine, from thick birch trees that made uphill movement with a sledge almost impossible to sinkholes formed from old rotted wood and forest floor. Jan was in severe pain often and spent most of the ascent unconscious from having blood rush to his feet when he was being dragged up head first and then when they switched to feet first. All they could do was pray that when they reached the top and handed him to the laps that Jan was still alive. They cleared the forested area at about 1,000 feet and checked on Jan, who was conscious then, and gave him some brandy. Starting there at the tree line was a sheer rock cliff, broken in one place by a cleft through which a now frozen stream was running. From that point on, the climbing became extremely dangerous. One slip, and the sledge would go careening down the cliff face, carrying Yon to certain death below. And at one point, someone did slip, and in just that split second, the sledge shot downwards. The only thing in its path was Amandus, and it ran over him, his body becoming lodged under it. That had the effect of slowing it and finally stopping it, and the men were able to grab it. For the rest of the climb, Amanda's pitched in like the others, but with two broken ribs. Now there was only 1,000 feet to go, and four men tied themselves to the sledge and chipped steps in the ice in order to proceed upward. Their only worry, this climb having taken many more hours than they had anticipated, was that they would miss the men from the isolated Mandel Valley who they hoped were waiting in the valley below. Exhausted, they finally reached a huge black rock which was the planned meeting place. Fighting to their dismay that the rescuers for the next leg were not there, there were no tracks of skis to show that they'd been there waiting. so Jan's four carriers donned their skis and went hunting the Mandel valley in search of them. Hours later, all four returned without having seen the group of rescuers from Mandel. Now Marius and his friends knew they had to return to the Now Marius and his friends knew they had to return to their village, as their absence would raise questions which sooner or later would bring the Germans down upon their families. They had to abandon Jan up there in the Mandel Valley. They found a four-foot-deep hole in the snow near a giant boulder and lowered Jan down into it, sledge and all, then untied the lashings holding him down. The last man to leave was Amandus, who leaned in and asked, "'There's nothing else we can give you?' "'No. Thanks,' said Jan. "'I've got everything I need except hot and cold water.' They sadly left, knowing in their hearts they were probably leaving Jan to die. The plan when they got home was to somehow get a message to the key person in the Mandil Valley that they needed to get up there on that mountain to rescue Jan. None of Jan's friends knew that the Germans had just established a garrison in the only village in the Mandil Valley, that the people there were afraid of being seen leaving. But there were men who were organized and were wanting to go. A party of four men stood ready with ropes, skis, axes, and climbing equipment. They made the trip, entering the valley where Jan was, but couldn't find him, because by now he was buried under three feet of snow, and now the Germans were searching houses in their village. It was likely that their one phone contact was being tapped. Nevertheless, the Mandel Valley people continued searching. It was now a week since Jan had been lowered into his grave, and most of that week had been a blizzard. Word reached Marius that Jan had not been found. His former helpers were now out for a prolonged fishing trip, and that was how they earned their money. Olaf's sister, Agneth was as good as any man on skis, and she offered to go with him. He accepted, and together they climbed the first 2,000 feet of the mountain fairly quickly, only to find themselves in a blinding blizzard. High winds whipped ice particles at their faces, drawing blood, but they pressed on. They made it to the boulder, where Jan was, and it was now obvious why the Mandel men had not seen the hole. It was buried in snow. Marius removed his skis and knelt down, digging through the snow to get to what he knew would be Jan's dead body. When he had dug away three feet of snow, the remainder collapsed inward, and Jan's ghastly white face appeared. Don't look, Marius said to Agneth. He's dead. At the sound of Marius's voice, Jan stirred and said, I'm not dead yet, damn you. Jan opened his eyes and saw two astonished faces staring down at him. Jan said, You can't kill an old fox. He had lain for over seven days covered with three feet of snow, in pain, unable to move, sure that his rescuers had either left him for dead or were dead themselves. The temperature in his snowy grave was a few degrees either side of zero. Only the heat of his body, which could barely move and was trapped below that snow, was keeping him alive. He did have a bottle of brandy and he had his revolver. His hands were free and he cleaned his revolver whenever he could just to beat the boredom. The only way they could rescue Jan now was to bring more men. Marius explained to Jan that he was placing a flag now by the boulder which could easily be spotted and would not be covered with snow should the snow come again. Within half an hour of finding Jan, they left for help. The following night, the third search party from Mandel found Jan and pulling he and the sledge out of the hole, headed for the Swedish border, now twenty-five miles away. At one point, the sledge got away from them, sending Jan flying down the side of a slope but fortunately he came to rest still right side up in a field of snow and ice. Finally, after hours of exhausting travel, the Mandel rescuers became exhausted, and giving up on reaching the Swedish border, they turned back towards their home valley. The blizzard sprang up again, and it had now been sixteen straight hours for them as a search and rescue party. They found Jan another rock, dragged Jan to the foot of it, stowed their spare food beside him, and built a low wall of snow to shelter him from the wind. This was all they could do for him, and it was all he wanted. When they finished, they promised to return. He was now two miles closer to Sweden than he'd been before. He lay there between the rock and the snow wall for three weeks. Out in the elements this time. He had to suffer his just beginning to thaw when the sun came out, and then his refreezing when nighttime came again. The only reason he never got pneumonia was because germs can't survive on those cold plateaus. Different parties of men arrived every three days bringing dried codfish, cod liver oil, and bread. He began to have bouts with fear and anxiety, fear of wolves, fear of dying alone, and fear of losing not only his feet, but his legs to gangrene. At one point he pulled out his pocket knife and dissected his toes, laying each one of the ten toes on the rock above him. He smeared cod liver on each wound and wrapped its place with a piece of blanket. He was sure the gangrene was coming from his toes, and he had to stop it before it spread to his whole body. The news from the men who came was that the Germans had formed ski patrols and were now scouring the valley for Jan. What they were doing here was waiting for the laps to come and get Jan and transport him along routes only they knew to Sweden and freedom and a hospital. Jan was weakening, though, which was no wonder, considering how long he'd had to suffer all this. So many men from Mandel had now come that the general fear was that the Germans would take the entire village and ship them all to concentration camps. Finally, six Mandel men came to get Jan and transport him themselves. They hauled him out of his tent, went two miles, hit another blizzard, and turned back, leaving him back where they'd found him. Finally, Jan decided to just kill himself, but found his fingers were too weak to pull the trigger. He was in bad shape Finally more rescuers moved him to a cave and he laid counting drops from the cave ceiling and going out of his mind while his visitors brought rumors of the Germans and of the so far as yet uncooperative Lapps who had shown no willingness or courage to help. Then one day a Lap had made a firm promise, after demanding a ransom of brandy, blankets, coffee and tobacco, only if someone else could haul Jan up to where his reindeer herd was located on the plateau. But Jan didn't want to leave the cave, a great place to die he was thinking. It was certainly better than spending weeks buried under four feet of snow, or in a snow shelter next to a boulder. When they hauled Jan out of the cave on his sledge, his body weight had dropped to 78 pounds. Eight men had volunteered to move him and his sledge. One of the men had promised tobacco, but didn't bring it. Actually, tobacco was a very scarce resource under German occupation. Jan, restless and irritable, and always in pain, blew up at the man. For four days and nights, Jan and his sledge, sometimes with men around him, sometimes deserted, waited for the lap who had taken the bribe, but who never showed. One day, and he had no idea which, he found himself in a herd of reindeer with a lap standing over him, staring. Two more of them untied Jan from his sledge, and they loaded him onto a larger sledge. There was a jerk, and his sledge began to move. All Jan could see was the butt end of the reindeer that was hauling him. They were in a herd of about five hundred reindeer. That night he heard shrieking from the tents and wondered if they were killing each other until one came out of the tent holding a brandy bottle and handed it to Jan, encouraging him to take a swig. It was the first feeling of life he'd had in weeks. He took one swig and tried to smile. Days later, the lap stopped at a point overlooking a lake. Although they had shared not a word in common, one lap pointed at the lake and said, Kilpajarvi, and Jan knew that word. He knew that it was a lake, and he knew that lake was in Sweden. They had finally made it. Almost. Right at that moment the echo of a rifle shot broke the silence, and the laps turned to see a German ski patrol headed their way firing from a couple hundred yards away, out of range at the moment. The laps waved their arms at them as if to say, Don't shoot! Jan screamed at them to move the herd toward the lake, over the border. Then he pulled his pistol and pointed it at them, and he waved that toward the lake. Move! He shouted. After a moment of indecision, the laps moved, surrounded by the entire herd, toward the lake. And fast, snow was flying from their hooves. The laps on the skis keeping up with them as they ran. Somehow, Jan made it to Sweden. Although what happened after the German troop attacked and they fled toward the lake was not clear in his memory. Jan awoke in a Spanish hospital and had been there for a week before he was able to talk to anyone. The doctors asked who had amputated his toes. "'and he told them he had done it himself. "'They said if he hadn't, he would have lost both his feet, "'which they were able to save. "'And they agreed. "'As he recovered, he desperately wanted to get information "'from his British handlers, "'but because Sweden had remained neutral, "'the hospital as well as communication sources were compromised, "'and he didn't want any of the people who had helped him to become known. "'So he kept his story quiet. "'Finally he shared all he could remember "'with the secretary in the Norwegian embassy. "'There was no one back in England that he could talk to.' The men managing and training resistance fighters didn't need to hear his story, which is more like a bad dream of a failed mission than a story. He threw himself in army training, learning again how to walk and run without losing his balance, and getting himself fit again to go back to Norway and fight. No retribution ever came to the people who had helped him. And by the time David Howarth wrote the epic book, We Die Alone, old Bernard Sorensen was 82 and still going strong. Marius and the men of Furuflaten Village formed a partnership, and started a building company after the war. Marius married Agnath Lanes, and they built a new house by the site of the old log house to which the frozen Jan had stumbled years ago. Jan was sent again to Norway as an agent, and was on active duty when Germany finally fell, and the rejoicing and retribution began in earnest. For patriots will always be honored, and traitors will always be punished. Jan married an American girl named Evie, and they lived in a house in the pine woods on the outskirts of Oslo. To walk by this house and see him working in his yard, you would never guess he was one of the many unsung heroes of World War II. Thanks for joining us, everyone, at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. Please do share our show with others. We appreciate it. And please do stop a moment and send us a review, especially you Apple listeners. Reviews help new listeners find us, and we appreciate them very much. If you'd like to support our show, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. And for about the price of a blended cup of coffee monthly, you can help support 1001 Network and all our shows going forward. And you'll get a bunch of ad-free episodes as well as early bird episodes for joining, depending on what level you pick. We'll return next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe. And we'll be back soon.